So in the last few weeks, we've been um, seeing the early church begin to scatter. And, and unfortunately, it's due to persecution. They were, uh, they were dealing with a guy named Saul who was wreaking havoc on followers of Jesus. And because of that, they had to start getting out of Jerusalem. And that can seem like a bad thing, but when the church scatters, the gospel message scatters. And so what we're actually seeing in, in our passage today is, is Christ's words to his disciples in Acts 1.8 being carried out. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so far they've been his witnesses in Jerusalem. We've seen that. And in Judea, the larger portion. And then out to Samaria, we saw that uh, last week. And now we're beginning to see the church spread to the ends of the earth. We cannot interrupt the plans of God. Man cannot do that. Saul couldn't do that. Nobody's been able to do it. And, and I just think that, you know, there's been plenty of hammers that have been worn out on the anvil of God's power over the years trying to, trying to break it down, and they just can't. So in Acts um, chapter 8, we're going to pick up in verse 26, which tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to Philip and said, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So it starts out by, by telling us that Philip, who was one of the seven uh, newly appointed deacons in the church, was visited by an angel of the Lord and given a mission. And I just think, how cool would that be? Um, and I just think about what Philip would have been feeling at that time. He's already been part of an amazing work of God in Jerusalem and, and, and recently in Samaria. He's seeing crazy things happen. He's being used mightily. And now he's getting tapped for a special assignment given to him directly from an angel of the Lord, no less. But then the instructions tell him to leave the thriving ministry that's taking place and to head towards a south road that goes toward a, a desert place. And I don't, you know, I'm just thinking that's going to be hot. And dusty and desolate. And so in your mind, you're, at first you're thinking, this is amazing. And then you're thinking, wait a minute, is this a promotion or is this a, is this a demotion? What's happening here, Lord? So at any rate, verse 27 tells us Philip rose and went. And then it tells us who God sent him there for. Philip kind of gives us a bio of who this person is. It says, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. That's quite a bit of information we just got about this guy in a short amount of time. This was a black man that was from a region known as Ethiopia, which was Cush at the time. In modern day, it's Sudan and Africa. Uh, he was a eunuch, which meant he was castrated so that he could be trusted by his employer to, to, you know, to not get in any trouble in the kingdom, uh, which was a common practice and and an effective practice that was taken, was common there. I'll just leave it at that. I, you could go further, but I think everybody tracks with that. So, sorry, but it's part of the text. You've got to talk about it. It says he was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Candace is not a person's name, but it's rather a title like Pharaoh or Caesar. His job there was he was basically the CFO of the Ethiopian kingdom. He was the chief financial officer. He was in charge of the money, so he was trusted and he was important. He made a long journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, which was not easy in that day, by chariot, because he wanted to worship the one true God. And finally, we know that he treasured the Word of God because he had this scroll that he was reading from 
that would have been very expensive at that time. You know, we have Bibles all over the place, but, but then to have a scroll with God's Word written on it would have been extremely valuable. So he's seated in his chariot, reading from the book of Isaiah, and in verse 29 we're told that the Holy Spirit tells Philip, go and join this chariot. And I try to put myself in Philip's position as I'm thinking about this and imagine, you know, the Spirit nudging me to go over and talk to a, a total stranger uh, that is very different from me. And, and I immediately get uncomfortable and think, well, that's super awkward and intimidating. And, and what am I going to say when I walk up to this guy? You know, it's like, nice weather we've been having. You know, it's, it's like, what do you say to somebody you've never met before? And, and how do you break into that? But it just so happens that the custom of that time was for people to read aloud. And so imagine Philip's relief as he nears the chariot and he hears the man reading the Bible. A very well-known passage, in fact. So in verse 30, it says, Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. It's amazing um, to me how quickly you can get into a meaningful gospel conversation with somebody if you're trying to. And one of the ways you do this is just by asking a few questions. Notice that Philip didn't walk up and confront the guy with, with something like, you know, if you were to die today, do you know where you'd go? You know, I think that we think that that's what evangelism sometimes is. And that's just like, well, who wants to go up and start a conversation that way? You know, that's kind of, that's, that's abrupt, right? He doesn't start there. And I, I think we can overcomplicate engaging people with the gospel and make it much more awkward than is necessary. So when you meet someone as you're out and about and, and you're paying attention to where God's leading you and who's around you, Start out by asking some questions, sincere questions, and, and see where it goes from there. Get to know them a little and get that person talking. It's amazing when most people, if you find, they even say in job interviews, uh, if you can turn it around to get the guy that's interviewing you or the, the woman that's interviewing you to start talking, they'll think, that guy was fantastic. I can't wait to hire him because they just sat and talked about themselves the whole time and you didn't say much of anything. And, and I, I've never had to do that, but I've heard it could work. I don't know. Sounds good, but, but people generally like to talk about themselves. They, they are interested in letting you know about them. So get them talking. When you meet somebody, and we do this, we've done this a lot, and it's not like a perfect science, but say, hey, you know, are, you, are you from around here? We have a lot of tourists in this area. That's a great question to ask somebody. You know, if they say no, what's the next question? Where are you from? See, you guys are already getting this. If they're from here, say, how long have you been in the area? You know, do you like it? They, they'll start talking. They'll tell you what they like and what they don't like. You know, what kind, what kind of work do you do? You're getting to know this person. What do you do for fun? At some point, ask this question. Are you a churchgoer? It's a great question to ask somebody. It's not offensive. They'll actually think it's probably a compliment. It's like, oh, you must have seen something in me that made you think that maybe I was a churchgoer. It really is a good, innocent question to ask, and it works. And we watch people, and usually at that point it gets really interesting because they will start to tell you stuff that you're like, wow, I can't believe they're telling me all this stuff. It's like you just tapped into this, you know, this, this well of information about, well, when I was a kid, you know, and they'll just start talking about all kinds of stuff. And listen and learn what they're saying. You can find out that the reason that I don't like church anymore is because somebody treated me poorly or the reason I don't like church anymore or I don't go anymore is because I believe in science now or, or whatever it happens to be. And, and then you have like a, a whole base of information to begin to talk to them in a way that um, hopefully will bring them to Christ. You can start to tailor your answers to that individual. And that's a beautiful thing. And again, this is something that is sincere. 
You're not, you're actually interested in this person, genuinely care about them. You're not just out to get a notch in your, in your belt for, you know, I want another one to Christ. That's not, hopefully you love people and you want to see them meet their Savior. And that comes across if it's genuine, I believe. But you don't have to have a pre-planned speech or all of your answers ready. And I hope that's a comfort to you because I think sometimes we think, well, if I don't have like something pre-planned and all my stuff ready to go, all my ducks in a row, that this isn't going to work. But I want you to know that God comes through in the clutch. I love what Jesus told his disciples when he said, sometime you're going to get pulled in front of the authorities and you're going to get questioned. And he said in Luke 21, verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. And I'm going to tell you, I am the king of meditating in my mind beforehand how to answer. And not just in this regard, but I mean, I remember going to work, you know, driving, thinking, okay, I've got to have this conversation with my boss, so I'm going to say this, and then he's going to say that, and then I'm going to come back with this, and it's going to be really good, and then he's going to be like, oh, you know. And I do this thing in my head about how it's all going to go, and guess what happens? None of that. Yeah, nothing, none of that. That doesn't even work at all. You know, the first question goes wrong, and then you're like, ah, you know, panic. What do I do now? Jesus says, don't meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And that should be a comfort to us. And I've seen this be true over and over again. Um, this, we just went to the, I just went to the youth retreat a couple weeks ago, and we decided to do a Q&A time with the, you know, this group of, the larger group of kids that were there, which is pretty risky um, and kind of scary because they ask some doozies. Uh, but we decided we're going to do this Q&A time. And the first night, we formed a panel that consisted of me and, and two guys that I didn't know very well from other churches. One guy was a worship guy and one guy was a, 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 like a youth pastor. I didn't know them, but we thought, okay, we're going to do this. And we just asked the kids to raise their hands and ask their questions. And what was amazing was it, it literally sounded like we were all answering with the same voice. And I believe we were. I believe the, the Holy Spirit just did something to where when one of them would answer, I would think, that's, that's what I would have, you know, that would, or maybe not what I would have come up with, but what I would have wanted to come up with. And, and it just went beautifully. Then the next night we decided to do it again, but somebody had the idea, hey, this time let's have all the kids write their questions down beforehand. And it was a good idea because some of the kids were intimidated to ask the, the tough ones beforehand. So that was a good idea. But the problem was what we did is we took those questions and we sat down with them beforehand and we figured out our answers. And that might not sound like a bad idea, but the truth was it didn't work nearly as well. It, it really just came off as kind of canned and lifeless. And I'm guessing that's because we were relying much more heavily upon ourselves at that time than we were upon God. It was much more of us and much less of him. And, and it felt completely different. Now, now I want to make sure that you understand this. I'm not saying don't study your Bibles. I'm not saying don't read the Word of God. I'm not saying don't hide that in your heart or don't know why you believe what you believe. If you're a Christian, doctrine is a fantastic thing for you to study and learn. Why do you believe the things you believe? Have an answer ready. I mean, have, you know, know, know these things. That's important. But my point is when the time comes, trust that God will come through. He is the one who is able, not you. And I don't mean to be insulting, but that's just the truth. He's able. You're not. And that should be a comfort to us. Another thing we see from the conversation between Philip and the Ethiopian is the man's lack of understanding of the Bible. And I wish this wasn't the case, but I found that this is just pretty common in churches and among you. Even at the youth retreat, I was amazed at these kids. You would speak, you would have them read a passage, and it was a really clear passage, I thought, and then you'd ask them, what did it mean? 
And the stuff they came up with was like, huh? You know, can I see the translation you're reading? Because that didn't even, and it was like, no, it's right there. But they, they didn't understand the Bible. And I, I, I'm pretty convinced that that's true of a lot of people in churches. And that's not something to be ashamed of. That's something to, to recognize and acknowledge and ask somebody, hey, can you help me understand it? Just like the Ethiopian did. Hey, I don't, how, how can I understand this? Let me explain it to me. And the truth is, God has gifted the church with people who understand these things and can teach them. There are teachers all around. Utilize them. If you've got questions about the Bible, questions about hard things, questions about your doctrine, ask us. I love it. I, I actually go overboard probably, but I love it when people email me questions about, you know, what about this? And I, it just like it gets my blood pumping. I'm like, oh, yeah. And I'll type you a letter. Um, I, but it's fun. Or we can do it over the phone. And I know the other guys are the same way. They would love to sit down with you and talk about this stuff. We, we're here for that, and we want to help you with that. So the eunuch invites Philip to sit with him and explain what he's reading. And so in verse 32, it says, Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. It's amazing. This man just happened to be reading the place in the Bible that is the most explicit chapter about Jesus in the Old Testament. What are the chances of that? I mean, wow, what a, what a happy coincidence that is, that he just happened to be reading the one place in, in the Old Testament that really clearly speaks about Jesus and, and what's said there could apply to really nobody but Jesus. This kind of provides what I would call a slam dunk opportunity for Philip. You know, can you tell me? Can you, do you have any idea who this might be talking about? Any chance you can unveil this mystery about who this is talking about? Who is this lamb that was slain? Who was humiliated and denied justice? And Philip's like... Yeah, I can do this one. I absolutely can tell you who this is talking about. So he started with that scripture, and then he went on to tell him the story of Jesus and all that had taken place. He pointed, he took, you know, the Bible, every road leads to Jesus. It's not always clear where it's going or how it's happening, but the main trunk that runs through the Bible is a story of redemption with a hero named Jesus. And if you're not reading your Bible and finding him, you're reading it wrong. Look for Jesus in the pages of the Bible. We just did this at the, at the youth retreat. It was fun. I keep going back there. Sorry, but you should have been there. But uh, we, we read the story of David and Goliath. And we read that story, and we, we always want to make ourselves the hero of the Bible. So we read that story, and it's like, okay, I'm David, and that giant represents something in my life that I just can't conquer and bring down. So I'm going to pick up a stone of faith, and I'm going to sling it at that giant, and I'm going to be victorious. You know, and that's how we like to read it. But this is the way you read Christ into that. I'm not David. I'm the scared Israelites. I'm the ones that were terrified because I don't like giants. I'm scared to death of giants, and I can't beat giants. That's not in me. Christ is David. Christ is the one who can conquer what we can't. The, the giant represents sin and death, and Christ is the conqueror who comes and takes him out for us. That's the story of the Bible. And if you're not reading it that way, if you're the hero of the Bible, you're reading it wrong. Okay? Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Sorry, I just went off track there. So in verse 36, it says, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. 
And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, depending on what Bible version you're reading, some of you may just think I skipped a verse. Does anybody have verse 37 in their Bibles? All right. A couple of people do. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's probably a little freaky to know that my Bible doesn't have that verse in it. So it's pretty well accepted that if what verse 37 does say, just in case you don't have it, uh, the eunuch asked, what prevents me from being baptized? And it says, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So that's what verse 37 says. The problem is most, most everybody agrees that that was added later. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. It was added later for clarification. Because the truth is, it sounds kind of funny without it in there. But, but you know, I mean, what prevents me from being baptized? Well, belief. Belief prevents you from being baptized. You, you've got to trust Christ if you want to be baptized. So it's implied that he did because Philip wouldn't have said, nothing prevents you from being baptized if he hadn't believed. You understand? So it's, even though it's not there, it's true, it's correct, and, and yeah, that's, it's, it's assumed that he had believed. So verse 39 then says, And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So this is an amazing account and an amazing day from, from this, this, for this man from Ethiopia. Philip shows up out of nowhere, preaches the gospel to him, baptizes him, and then apparently vanishes into thin air. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that guy? Just, and then it says the Ethiopian just went home rejoicing. I bet he did. I mean, he learned something that day about a God who wanted him and loved him and pursued him. Church tradition tells us that the eunuch carried the gospel back home to Ethiopia and a church was founded there. So that's the account. And now we're going to see kind of what we can glean from it as far as um, um, some, some points that we can pull out. And I, I came up with four points. These aren't cleverly labeled, but I'll tell you what they are firsthand. The first one is this. God moves people around for his own purposes. The second one is the gospel is sufficient to save. The third one is God's loving pursuit. And the fourth one is the immediacy and urgency of baptism. So the first one is that God moves people around for his own purposes. Um, as I stated earlier, uh, Philip's ministry in Samaria was going pretty well. From what we read, people were, were being saved, were being baptized. There were crazy things going on there. And, and it was really like it would have been a great time to be in Samaria and to be a part of that. So why would God call him away to the desert? And for one guy, nonetheless. I can imagine Philip thinking, well, this, this isn't a good use of my time and talents. I could be much more useful here. I mean, can't you see what's going on, Lord? Look how effective ministry is going. And it's even possible that the people that were there were disappointed. That Philip was going, don't send Philip. You know what? He, he's, he's one of our favorites. We really like his preaching. Don't, don't take him away. Right? We do this in the church today. And I think maybe we're looking at it the wrong way sometimes. What if God sent the right guy? What if this was a privilege and not an inconvenience? I'm betting you money that at the end of that day, Philip wasn't seeing this as an inconvenience. <laughs> Philip was like, wow, God, you picked me for that assignment? If you've ever led somebody to the Lord, you, you know what I'm, what I'm saying. It's, it's one of the most amazing things that you can be a part of as a Christian. Philip got the good deal that day. 
One of the things we believe at the door is that God can and will move his people around for the sake of the gospel. And that means that David or Terry or myself could get a call to a new assignment and not be here as much. We, we actually saw that last year when we, we took a run at the Riverwoods deal. David was gone for you know the better part of six months or so. And it was hard to have him gone. It was hard for all of us. It was, it was hard for him. But it was for the sake of the gospel. And it's, it could happen again. It also means that some of your favorite people from the congregation might get called to go and help with something like that, might get a new assignment. And, and if and when God provides an opportunity for, for us to be a part of another church plant or a church rescue or something along those lines, some of you might get called upon to go and help there too. It's all for the greater good of God's kingdom. And it's a privilege to be used by God. As a church and as individuals, we need to make sure that we're listening to and yielding to the Spirit of God and not ignoring God for the sake of our own comfort and preference. I like my comforts. I like my preferences. I like things the way I like things. And sometimes when, when somebody goes away or something like that happens, it, it, it's hard. I know that's the case. But again, God's working and we need to be okay with, with you know, we can't hold on. You know, we, we get to spend eternity together, guys. That's the good news. If you're, if you're in Christ, we're going to have a lot of time together. So look forward to that. Now, when I say that we, we need to listen to God's Spirit and yield to God's Spirit. I'm not talking about actually hearing the voice of God, but being guided by His Spirit. And I, and I hope you're all aware of that as you go through your day. Do you believe God's Spirit is at work around us, in the lives of people around us? We need to be watchful and obedient. We need to have a willingness to go where God wants us to go and to engage with people that God wants us to engage with and to be willing to answer the questions they have about God. This week, I like to think that God might have some Ethiopian appointments for us, if you want to call them that. I believe that there might be places and people he wants you to go to and, and see and, and engage and talk to, and I hope you're excited about that. You might get to tell somebody about a Savior who loves them and who died for them so that they can be forgiven and experience a relationship with the God of heaven. There is no greater thing you can be doing than that. That's why we're here, in fact. So the question is, are you willing? And, and notice I didn't say, are you ready, willing, and able? Are you willing? God is ready and able. You don't even need to be ready and able. In fact, we, we really aren't. But He is. Are you willing? So that's the first one. God will move His, His people around for His own purposes. The second one is this. God is sufficient to save. The gospel, I'm sorry, that's, I didn't even read my own notes. The gospel is to, sufficient to save. And, and this sounds obvious, um, but there is a very popular movement gaining ground right now that is teaching that a gospel that doesn't include signs and wonders isn't a legitimate gospel. In fact, they would say that it's a powerless gospel that's ineffective. And, and now this is the, the segment of our sermon where I begin to step on toes. So prepare for that. I'm not doing it to be mean. I'm not doing it. To you know, it's it's out of love and concern, because this movement is gaining ground and it's starting to to infiltrate um, this area, especially young people. The movement that I'm talking about is referred to as the New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, there's three main streams of this movement, even though they don't call themselves this. This is what you know they've been identified as. Uh, one of them is the International Prayer out of House of Prayer, IHOP. It really is called IHOP, uh, out of Kansas City, but it's not the pancake place. 
Uh, the other one is the Toronto Blessing out of Toronto, Canada. And then the third one, and this is where you're going to get upset for, perhaps, is Bethel Church out of Reading. Um, Bethel's the one that's closest to us, and its influence is coming. If you're a huge fan, I want to make sure that I, there's probably some good things going on there. There's probably some good people associated with it. But I want you to listen to this quote in regard to what I just said from the guy that leads the place. His name is Bill Johnson. And this is what he said. And listen if you can hear the error in it. If signs, wonders, and miracles don't happen in your church, don't call it a church. It would be misleading. That's not a biblical statement. We've been going for eight years now, and the kind of signs, wonders, and miracles that, that he's referring to, we haven't seen very much of. We've seen healings. We've seen God at work. We've seen miracles happen, things I would call that. But as far as the, the kinds of things that they're talking about, we, we haven't seen a lot of that. Are we not a church? According to what he said, no. That we, we shouldn't call ourselves that. It would be misleading. That's disturbing to me. This is another quote that, he, that comes from him. The gospel is a gospel of power and must become manifest through supernatural demonstration. Miracles are not optional. So again, he just said, if you preach a gospel with no miracles present, it's not a gospel of power. It's not a gospel that can save is what that means. That's a terrifying statement again. And then this one he says, and this one is really, listen carefully. He says, Jesus performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God, not as God. I'm going to say that again. Jesus performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God, not as God. Now, the reason he says this is because he believes that Jesus did it as a man, and that means that we can do it as a man. So we will do greater works because, just because Jesus, they have a view that, uh, I don't want to get too theological. The, in Philippians 2, it talks about how God emptied himself. It's the Greek word kenosis. And so what they would say is that God emptied himself of his divinity, that he, he set his godness aside and was only a man, and so that the miracles he did was because he had a right relationship with the Father, and because he did that as only a man, we can expect to do the same thing since we are only men. That's the idea. So I'm going to read that one more time, and I didn't finish it. Jesus performs miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God, not as God. If he performed miracles because he, because he was God, then they would be unattainable for us. So that's what he's saying, that they are attainable for us because of this. And, 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 and here's my point. I'm not, we're not against signs and wonders. We're not against miracles. We've seen, like I said, some amazing things go on in the church. If they're real, that's great. But, but this is what happens when you start to go down this road. The signs and the wonders become the prize. They become everything. This is the same with the prosperity gospel. When the prosperity gospel, when you, when you buy into that, what becomes the prize? Money becomes the prize. The health and wealth stuff, what becomes the prize? Your health becomes the prize. And that's idolatry. That's not, I want you to understand, Christ in us is the miracle. Christ in us is the prize. That is the, that's the money. That's the health. That's everything. That's better than signs and wonders. The fact that Jesus came for you and I and indwells us and cleans us and forgives us, that's the miracle. That's the best part. This other stuff is not the best part. And, and if you pull people in with signs and wonders, guess what you've got to do to keep them? You've got to keep churning them out. And that's what you see happening in these places. Is that it has to be a continual signs and wonders festivals, a festival. And they have that going on. If you look into it, again, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to beat them up. I'm not trying to say horrible things about them. I don't know them personally. 
but but I would just say, guys, if you're if you're if you're in that mindset, if you're thinking about those things, there's some red flags to look at, and I, I pray that you would have discernment. I want to make sure that you understand what makes us the church is not signs and wonders happening here. It's the proclamation of the person and work of Christ. It's following his teachings. It's taking part in the Lord's Supper and baptizing people that we preach the gospel to. That's what the Bible talks about the church, or how it defines the church. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul was dealing with this, and he said in verse 22, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's it. That's clear. And I want to ask you the question, in this, in this conversion of the Ethiopian, how many signs and wonders were done? There was nothing miraculous going on in regards to signs and wonders. Now, there is a, every time somebody becomes a saved, becomes a Christian, or becomes saved, it's miraculous. Don't misunderstand that. But you didn't see anything. You saw an evangelist guided by the Holy Spirit who preached the Word, and the guy got saved. So I want to make sure you understand, that is sufficient to save people. No signs and wonders necessary, right? Okay, Whew. I'm probably done, <laughs> done with that. Um, one more, Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power. That message that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and resurrected is the power to save people. If you want to learn more about this movement, there's a, there's a new documentary out. It's called American Gospel. We have a DVD copy and a Blu-ray copy. You can rent it on Amazon for three bucks, I think. You can find it on, here's a short version on YouTube that's 40 minutes long. Um, if, you, if you feel like your toes just got stepped on, it'll probably step on them more, but I would encourage you to watch it because it really does, it, it goes to, it name, names names, it gives quotes, it gives examples. But you need to know what's out there. And so it's called American Gospel, Christ Alone. And it's really well done. The long version is two hours and 20 minutes. So you might break it up into a couple, unless you can really. And it's, it's pretty deep and heavy stuff. I would highly encourage it. Uh, David's seen it too. I don't know if Terry's watched it yet. But it's just, it's just good. And it, and it takes this idea of what in America we've started to call the gospel and, and says, no, it's Christ alone. And it always has been Christ alone. And it always will be Christ alone. So I would encourage you guys to watch that. Okay. The next one. This is a little bit easier for you. We see God's loving pursuit. There's something very amazing about the pursuit of God in this account. Um, Philip gets called away from what he was involved in to go on a special assignment in the middle of nowhere for one man, a black man, a foreign man, a marred man, a rejected man. As someone who has just visited Jerusalem in an attempt to worship God, this one individual represents a foreigner, one could even say an immigrant. He represents a minority, and he represents someone who has been marginalized by society because of his condition. And God sent one of his best on a special assignment to capture this guy. You know, sometimes we can have pretty messed up ideas about who can be in and who must stay out. And I just think this, this account makes it so clear that the gospel is for everyone, even an Ethiopian unit from another country that we may never have taken a second look at. And God wanted this guy. Now, I mentioned that this man attempted to worship God, and I want to explain that. He had traveled a very long distance to come to the temple, but most likely when he got there, he would not have been allowed to enter the temple. Because according to Deuteronomy 23.1, a person in his condition 
would not have been allowed into the assembly of the Lord. So there's a very good chance that due to the Old Testament law, when he got there, he was turned away. You're not, you're not, you're not able to come in. You're not worthy to come in. And this makes the pursuit of God even more amazing. I can picture this guy driving off dejected. He came to worship the one true God, and, and, and he heads down the lonely desert road. And then this guy just comes, you know, trucking up alongside the chariot. And it's like, hey, God has a message that he really wants you to hear. He wants you. You matter to him. He loves you. He wants you to know him. Can you imagine what that would feel like to this guy? And remember what the Ethiopian was reading when Philip approached him. He was reading about one who had been rejected, one who had been humiliated, he was reading about one who had been cut off from his people and who wouldn't have any descendants. Isn't that amazing? That's what he's reading. And so no wonder he said, well, hey, can you tell me who, who's this talking about? This kind of sounds like me. Some of, this, some of this sounds like me. And Philip was able to tell him, yeah, this is a Savior who knows you, who loves you, and who wants you. Someone who was rejected so that you could be accepted. Somebody who was crushed so that you could be healed. Somebody who was despised so that you could be loved. Somebody who was cut off so that you could be grafted in. And his name is Jesus. And the Ethiopian placed his trust in that name. And I love the question that, that he asks Philip. You know, what prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me? Yeah, you get the feeling it's like he'd just been prevented from a lot of things because of who he was. Maybe his skin color, maybe his condition, whatever it was. What prevents me? And the answer is nothing. Nothing prevents you. And I love that answer. Again, I, some of these kids that I worked with a couple weeks ago, I got letters. Sorry, wasn't planning on this one either. I got letters basically saying I've attempted my, to take my life. And because of that, I know I'm not worthy to become a Christian. <laughs> it's like, wow. What prevents you from coming to Christ? Nothing. And it was great to be able to tell them that. But we have this belief sometimes that my sin's too much, and it's just not true. It's almost there, but I just can't see what's next. Nothing prevents you from being united to Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection. And that's what we see here in regards to the baptism that's about to take place. And I'm going to end with this. You see this immediacy and urgency of baptism. The man's first thought after believing is, I want to get baptized. And this is something we don't see very often today, I, I feel like. Often a person might be a believer for a number of years before getting baptized, if ever. In part, I believe it's because we've gone to two different extremes with baptism. People either make it um, almost everything, or they make it almost nothing. Those who make it almost everything say that water baptism is, ne is necessary for salvation, and it isn't. And those who make it almost nothing say, well, since it's not necessary for salvation, maybe it's just not that important and maybe I'll get around to it someday, maybe. And I want to say baptism is important. Jesus gave his church two sacraments or ordinances that he wanted us to practice, the other being communion, which, by the way, we also do the same thing with. We go to two extremes with it. We make it almost everything or we make it almost nothing. And the truth is that both of these things are somewhere in between that. They're mysterious. Um, it's easy to, 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 to make too much of them and it's easy to make too little of them, but there's something amazing because they both display the power 
of Christ. They both display the gospel, and they are both inseparably linked to our salvation and to, to Christ himself. Baptism tells us that Jesus has washed away our sins and made us clean. It's an expression of God's promise to you. It isn't just us expressing our commitment to God. It's, his, it's Him expressing His commitment to us, too, and communion is that as well. So both baptism and communion, and as we're, as we're about to come to the table, I want you to consider this. Both of these things are a way of expressing Christ's work for us. They're both a way for, as a church, for us to come together and celebrate Christ's work together as a body, what He's done for us collectively. And it's a way for us also to proclaim Christ's work to the world around us. And so don't, if you haven't been baptized and you're a believer, I just have to say, why? Why not? Get baptized. August 11th, we're having a baptism. If you've not been baptized, come and talk to us. We would love for that to be the day when that takes place. Father, I just want to pray now for um, this time that we have to come around the table and, and remember what Jesus has done for us. Lord, this is never to be taken lightly. This is something that uh, represents Jesus Christ going to the cross on our behalf, where his body was broken instead of ours, and his blood was shed instead of ours. And he hung on that cross for sinners so that we could have salvation, so that we could know you and be forgiven. Father, we pray that if there's anybody here today who has never trusted in that, the gospel, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the power of the message of the gospel, would save them to the uttermost, Lord, that they would be radically changed from, from the inside out, as only you can do. Father, we thank you that Christ is sufficient, that his work on the cross is enough, that when he said it is finished, he meant it, and we don't have to add anything to it. Nothing prevents us from coming to this table right now if we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for us, was buried, and rose again. So thank you, Father, that you have done all the work, and we just need to trust and believe in it. In Jesus' name, amen.